Would you guys do me a favor and turn to Acts chapter 9? If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. We have some on the table back there. And if you don't have one, that is our gift to you. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read this story. It's a famous story. We're back in our series in the book of Acts. And then I'm going to see and explore how this little famous story is actually pointing to a bigger story that the book of Acts is telling. And then I want to close our time by stepping into the story ourselves. That's a lot of stories. So while you're turning to Acts chapter 9, let me remind you. We're going to read this story. We're going to see the bigger story that this is pointing to. And then we're going to ourselves step into this story as we get back into the book of Acts. Everybody good? We're doing all right? I'm going to try to move and groove because some of us are getting a little sunburned. So let's get into our story. You guys ready? Feeling good? Kiddos, you have your own version of this story in your kids' handouts and a picture that you can color. Let's see if we can all follow along together. Back in the book of Acts, chapter 9. Let's begin in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if they found any there who belonged to the way, what do you think they're talking about there, the way? That would be this new Jesus way, the Jesus community. So he found anybody belonging to the way, whether men or women, listen to this, y'all. He might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus, y'all hear this. On his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That's interesting. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Let's stop there. Who is he dragging out of the synagogues? That's some men and women belonging to the what? The way. Yet Jesus himself, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the one who said, abide in me as I abide in you, in some mystery of oneness, to persecute the people of Jesus is to watch, persecute Jesus himself. That's heavy. So Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up. And go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. What would you be thinking at this moment as the light shone around, and you hear this voice, and this person saying, Man, you are persecuting me. Verse 7. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Kind of like me last week after my second vaccine shot. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. 
the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. What would you say? Verse 11, the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, not that Judas, another Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Are you tracking with the story? Saul is on the road and he sees Jesus. Then there's this guy, Ananias, who gets a vision and Jesus encounters him and says, look, man, you got to go to this house. There's this guy named Saul. I just found him on the road to Damascus. He's not eating or drinking anything. And he's waiting for someone named you, Ananias, to show up, put your hands on him to restore his sight. I love this next part. Lord, Ananias answered. Uh, I don't know if you've heard, but I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go! This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. The Gentiles is the Jewish word for everybody else that's not Jewish. He keeps going. To the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel, which is everyone. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Pause there real quick, because I'm only going to keep this windy Bible open for another moment. Now, Ananias says he's persecuting the people that bear the name. And Jesus says he's going to be the one to carry my name to the rest of the world. And he's going to also himself be persecuted for my name. Fascinating, this reversal. Verse 17, nearing home here. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and look, was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say here, thanks be to God. What a powerful story. Raise your hand if you've heard this story. This is a famous story and you may have heard the phrase, on the road to Damascus. This is less a conversion and more like a volcanic eruption that set this man's life on a completely new trajectory. But before we get into the story ourselves and talk about the bigger story, let me tell you a little bit of news from the Wood family as we get into this to try to illustrate how radical of a reversal this is. Some of you may not have heard, some of you may have heard, that the woods are buying a house. We are presently, thank you, I'm glad that y'all are excited about it. In a couple weeks, they're gonna take all our money. But we're buying a house as first time home buyers. It is an exciting and scary proposition. And 
some family that's not here this evening had told us within the church that here's our advice. You kind of don't know what you're doing when you're buying a house until you're just buying a house and you just do whatever they tell you next. And so one of the steps in the home buying process was, okay, show up because you're getting the inspection. We had heard about the inspection and we were a little nervous about the inspection, but the spoiler alert is it came back and it looked good. But we didn't know how this thing works out. So she said, okay, here's the deal. The homeowners are gonna leave. The inspector's gonna be there. He's gonna go through the whole house. It's gonna take him several hours, but you guys come like the last 30 minutes to an hour. And then he'll kind of give you the whole report and we'll talk about what we found. It's like, cool. Tell us when to show up and that's when we'll be there. Great. We show up and our realtor comes immediately to your car and says, hey, I, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I've never seen this. We're like, well, we've never seen this either. And if you've never seen it, we're in trouble. I said, what have you seen? And she says, the homeowners didn't leave. And I was like, okay. And she said, you know, they're working from home and I, I, I don't know, it, it'll, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. Well, meanwhile, my mom shows up she hadn't seen the house. First time our girls are seeing this house. So we're starting to amass an entourage in addition to the realtor and this whole thing. And around this time, one of the homeowners exits the property and starts to shoo us all away. She goes, you can't come in here. You can't come in here. Nobody told us about this. Nobody told us about this. She thought we were more prospective buyers coming to view this house after the whole larger entourage had come through for the weekend. So she goes, you can't be here. You can't be here. And we said, oh, no, no. We're the buyers. You may have seen our cheesy letter that we sent with our offer. And then she's like, so we're thinking, oh, she'll be cool with it. And she goes, no, you can't be here. This is the inspection. We are here. The house isn't clean. We're not this. And Amy and I are standing there holding our hands like, we can come back another time, Miss Realtor person. We don't have to be here right now. This woman is standing in her yard kicking us out of our new house that's not ours yet. So we, because we have a powerful realtor that worked our way in, said, we get 20 minutes. We say, okay. So she let us in the door and this woman is still very agitated, as you might be when you weren't expecting this entourage of people that could or could not potentially take possession of this house. And so, long story short, what begins to happen over the course of this time is she begins to realize we've got some commonality here. We start to hear a little bit of her story. Then, fast forward two and a half Hours later, we hear her whole story. She hears our whole story. I'm talking to her husband. He's talking about all of this and all of that with the house. I'm just wondering if he can leave the shelves in the garage. And all of a sudden, what started at odds ended as friends sharing a little bit of their life together and maybe even, Lord willing, those garage shelves. And Amy and I just got into our car after this incredibly disorienting experience of buying a house, especially with this disorienting experience, and we said, how did that happen? That in the span of two hours, we were about to get thrown out, and all of a sudden, we're best of friends talking about this and that 
And Lord willing, we may even get those shelves. This famous story is so famous because this is the most unlikely disciple. And you could tell that from the text. His name was Saul, and he was introduced in the chapter before it, chapter 8. Saul is introduced as someone who stood by at the murder of the first Christian martyr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, wants us to know that Saul sat there in the wings and approved of this killing. He loved it. He held their coats so they could kill better. <laughs> Later, in verse 3 of chapter 8, we're told that Saul moved on from there and was ravaging the church. In the beginning of our story this evening, in chapter 9, he took some initiative. He was a zealous person thinking he was on God's side. He got letters from the presiding religious leaders to go and round up more followers of Jesus. This is in chapter 9, but you need to understand that... This person that we meet on the Damascus Road really doesn't start the rest of his story until chapter 11. Okay? So follow me. This is super important as we point to the bigger story. You ready? Why do we get this Saul and this story in Acts chapter 9 when all of a sudden we really don't pick up the rest of it until chapter 11? Let me back up and offer this bit of Bible reading advice to you. When you're reading any book of the Bible, a great important question to ask is, where in this story is this scene? Why here? Why in Acts chapter nine do we get this dramatic famous story when we're not going to hear from him until two chapters later. You with me on this? Where matters in this journey? In Acts chapter 8, because it's been a minute since we've been in Acts, we meet an ethnic and religious other, a group of people called the Samaritans that the Jewish folks really disliked, and also a person that's called a magician who's a Samaritan, an ethnic and religious other, gets invited into the kingdom of God. Then in Acts chapter 8, there's an Ethiopian eunuch, a sexual minority, an ethnic minority, gets invited in to the kingdom of God. Then in Acts chapter 10, after this famous story, a social other who's from a high-ranking class, gets invited into the kingdom along with his household. And by the way, he's also a political other. He's a Roman military leader. He's a religious other. He's one of those Gentiles that I mentioned. So we have all of these others in Acts chapter 8 and 10 being invited into the kingdom of God. So when we read in Acts chapter 9, the bigger story going on, is that this violent, zealous persecutor who thought he was on God's side finds himself invited into the kingdom of God. So where in the story matters when Luke, who wrote this story down, shows us over and over again, catch this, 
that the Jesus way turns others into brothers. At the end of our story, do you remember what Ananias calls Saul? You remember? Someone just mouthed it, but she's in front of the camera. What does he call him at the end of our story? Brother Saul. The Jesus way turns others into brothers. And what we see throughout the movement of the story of Acts is this. It turns strangers into family. Acts is the story of how the good news of Jesus goes to everyone, everywhere. And if you're reading Acts chapter 8, 9, 10, and beyond, you're going to get the hint that he really means everyone. Are you with me on this? He really means it. Now, Imagine that you're in one of these Jesus communities who's been persecuted and ravaged by people like Saul or Saul himself, and you're hearing this story in the book of Acts. They record this dramatic conversion three times in the book of Acts. Here, and we're going to see later on in the story, Paul's going to retell this dramatic encounter. So imagine you're in one of these Jesus communities, and you hear about this Samaritan group. You hear about the Ethiopian. You hear about Cornelius. You hear about Saul. And you begin to say, oh man, I think they really mean everyone. Are you with me on this? This is radical. This is dramatic. When the Jesus way is the uh, branching out of God's peculiar people of Israel, and all of a sudden Jesus comes on the scene and begins to rezone the neighborhood and expand the people of God. We talk about this a lot in our church when we call it the neighborhood church, that Jesus in his ministry has taken the dividing lines, the boundary lines, the border lines of the neighborhood, of who's in and who's out and who is God happy with and calling and inviting into the kingdom. And Jesus says, let me take your little boundary because we're actually going to need to expand that. It's going to need to include this group of folks over here. Actually, you know, come to think of it, these lepers over here that haven't been touched, I'm going to touch them and show you that they can be healed and radically included. Oh, and actually this thief over here, Yeah, I need to go have dinner with him to show him that no matter what your past is and what you've done, we can work with that and deal with that when you're invited into God's kingdom. Jesus has rezoned our neighborhood. And when somebody says, well, who's my neighbor? Who's on the other side of the boundary marker? Jesus tells him a story that basically says the one person you could never believe, that other you could never imagine calling your brother that person. So the question for us is, who is the that person in our society? Because Jesus in his ministry continues to rezone the neighborhood. So you would hope that the Jesus community would follow the Jesus way. So what we see in the story and why this points to the bigger story is that over and over the story they're telling of the first community is, are they going to go and do likewise? And you know what's hilarious? They don't do it as well as Jesus. But you know what's beautiful? They don't do it as well as Jesus, which gives us hope. 
that we will do this imperfectly, but we need to make a choice if we will follow the Jesus example of rezoning our neighborhood so that all of a sudden, when he pushes those boundaries further and further out to include all of these people as worthy of an invitation, we see them no longer as an enemy or an other, but as a neighbor to be loved as ourself. Regardless of race, ethnicity, orientation, status, fill in the blank, gender, fill in the blank. This is one of our core practices. Jesus went and invited everyone into the community, everywhere into the life with God. God has reconciled the world to himself, and he's inviting us to go and do likewise. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, in Jesus' ministry, he absorbs the violence when they couldn't handle this. And he spoke a word of forgiveness. Do you remember? Father, what? Forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And then Stephen, with Saul approving of his killing, looks at Saul and his peers, and he says in Acts chapter 7, Lord, don't hold it against him. Jesus forgives, Jesus' follower forgives his murderers. So here's the question. Can that forgiveness and inclusion extend even further to Saul? Because it's one thing to say, I forgive you, and it's another to eat together at the table. We say a lot in uh, uh, premarital counseling or just different sessions that forgiveness is a one-way street. As followers of Jesus, we're called to follow Jesus' example of forgiveness. And so forgiveness as a one-way street means that I'm to hold no ill will and harm and malice against another person. Even if they have wronged me and assaulted me and accosted me, Jesus emphatically asks those who say, I'm his and I'm following him, to turn the other cheek, to bless, to forgive, even if it takes 70 times, seven times. And by the way, this one's free. I love to say that when the disciples said, well, how often should I forgive this dodo over here? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. I think personally that he says that because every time that thing rears up again and you're remembering this and you're frustrated by this is another opportunity to release that person, to release that action into God's hands and out of your own. Forgiveness is a one-way street, but watch, reconciliation, we're eating together and having a good time, that's a two-way street. In the 12-step program, we talk about offering amends, and amends are offered on a one-way street, but you cannot control what the other person does with that. We know this relationally and experientially, and it doesn't make it easier, but I promise it's worth remembering. So what happens here is... Ananias and this new Christian community, we love to talk in theory all day about how Jesus has welcomed that person and that person and that person. If they want in, I'm not holding them back. All they got to do is say yes to me. The question is, will the community invite them in? 
I love this illustration that Jason and Becky have said in our student ministry group for many years, probably since it started. It's this idea that really stuck with me that I've talked about before, but I want to remind you because I feel like it illustrates this before we wind down to the last bit of our message. He talks about how if Jesus were your neighbor and he lived in the house across the street, how often do you see your neighbor, talk to your neighbor, maybe let's say once a week, but there's some moment in which we go in our life and our journey with God that moves beyond just the waving at him once a week. Maybe like we do here in our worship gatherings or in our small groups midweek. Maybe you feel this invitation to actually take the next step into a relationship with him. Maybe you start to go over and have these conversations like you would with your neighbor. You begin to get to know him and what he's passionate about. You get to kind of know his whole understanding and view of the world. And maybe this is like the journey of discipleship, the more and more you're exploring. But eventually there's going to become this moment like we see with Saul and we see with all of you that Jesus is going to invite you to actually be a part of his household. And that's where your move from friend and stranger to family takes place. At some point, I still believe that there is a yes to be said to the invitation to come and live in my household. This is for children, students, for adults. There is a yes that happens because God has said yes to you emphatically. I want a relationship with you and, the, and to show you and share with you my life. But you've got to say that yes back. You're invited to accept the invitation. And when Jason and Becky were speaking about this with our youth group, they're talking about what it looks like to move into the family, to take on his rhythms, to eat breakfast when he eats breakfast, to eat lunch when he eats lunch, and to live under the family way. You with me on this? If Saul could be invited, if Saul could be reconciled, if all of these others, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, and in your life, and your life, in your life, do they really mean everyone? When he went through the waters of baptism, he was turned from other to brother Saul. When he went through the waters of baptism, initiated into the family name to say yes to Jesus, he was turned from a stranger to a family. And that's when Saul ate with his new friend and family, Ananias. You with me on this? Let's wind down, and I want to step into the story. I want to close not with a, another story or illustration. I want to close with a little bit of an imagination with you guys. I want you to kind of let this famous story sink in again. And notice we didn't talk about the mechanics of the conversion so much. We're talking about this radical inclusion that all people are actually really invited into life with God. So let's imagine you and your life with God now as we close. I want you to imagine this person on a journey, thinking he was headed one direction, but all of a sudden completely interrupted. Where are you on your journey? 
Can you really think of the direction that your life is headed in this moment? Saul thought he knew. Where are you on your journey? When was the last time you sensed or felt the presence of Jesus in your life? I want you to close your eyes even and imagine the light all of a sudden shining brighter and brighter until strangely and, and, and disturbingly, it's so bright you can't even see. You lose your balance, you lose your footing, you lose that sense of certainty that you knew how the world worked, you knew how God worked, you knew that you were doing the right thing and on His side, but all of a sudden, all of that is out the window. The light is shining brighter and brighter, you've been knocked off your feet, and all of a sudden you hear a voice. And I want you to imagine right now that that voice speaking through the light calls your name. And now, what does Jesus ask you? In this moment, as he's calling your name, what is he asking you? How does his voice sound? For Saul, it was a moment of redirection. Why are you doing this? You could live so much more abundantly even though it's difficult. What is he asking of you? Is it a voice of redirection or is it a voice of affirmation? Perhaps you want to take this image or idea with you, but I will offer you this before we move on and step into our next bit of the story. Father Greg Boyle, who has given his life to work with gang members in L.A., says, How much better is the God we have than the God we thought we had? Saul has a moment of encounter that redirects his life, and it shows him that God is actually so much more interactive and so much better than the one he had all figured out. This, in fact, was where the story and where God was headed all along. So now as we round home, I want to tell you that there's another vision, another encounter I'd like for us to step inside, and that's Ananias. This is his one and only appearance. He's not a big name. He's not a superstar. And I love this because in American Christianity, we're so obsessed with numbers and names. And I'm so grateful for our friend in Russia who comes and reminds me that success, however you define that, is actually not a kingdom word. Faithfulness is a kingdom word. Ananias, by any metrics of American standards, is not successful. He kind of enters into the story and he exits. But Ananias is faithful. Did you notice that he has this interactive relationship with God. He's with Jesus. He listened to Jesus. He discerned and wrestled with Jesus. Did you notice how he was kind of like, nah, you're crazy. I'm not so sure about this. Haven't you heard? Shouldn't you know the guy you're sending me to? But here's the deal. 
He was faithful enough to follow even when it was hard and it didn't make sense. That's often where the most life is on the other side of difficulty and mystery. Are we faithful enough to follow even when it's hard and when it doesn't make sense? Because when he chose to do that, it changed the course of the world. Because it really wasn't complete until Ananias, sent by Jesus, comes and extends the touch of God through the touch of his own hand. Did you miss that? Not only is there a oneness in the fact that when we're persecuting the people of God, we're in some mysterious way persecuting Jesus himself. But can you sense, can you imagine in your own life that when you reach out to encourage, to equip, to bless, and to pray, you're not just extending your hand. Could you even dare to imagine that you're extending the very hand of God? So let's take one last breath. One last moment. And I want you to imagine that you're right here and that you have a sense that Jesus is at work in your circles of relationship. Your network at work, your extended family, your neighbors geographically, or those you interact with in your friend group, I want you to pause for a moment and see if someone's name or face drifts to your consciousness. Could it be that that person is in need of some encouragement or some touch or some uh, uh, sense that they're not alone and that God is not done? Would you like Ananias question and talk back and say, could it really be that you're sending me to that person? Would you spend a few moments now and this evening wrestling with that? And finally, I'll ask you, if you hear the word that Ananias did, go, would you go this week? Would you extend some word, some encouragement, some semblance of what you sense the Holy Spirit is doing? Because the Holy Spirit is at work right now trying to turn others into brothers if we would go out and confirm that invitation. He's bringing people to the doorstep of our house and it's up to us to let them in to the table. There are no God-forsaken people or places. There's only church-forsaken people and places. Would we be an Ananias to a Saul? Would we keep our eyes open on the road for an encounter that redirects us and sends us into new territory? Would we be a church that turns strangers into family? Amen. Lord, we are grateful for this time together. And even though we're joking about the wind and the sun, it reminds us that the seasons are changing and that you are moving and inviting. And we are moving forward out of darkness and more and more into life and light. So we pray, Lord, that those who have not said yes 
would say yes. We pray that those that need to say yes for the 100th time would be gently redirected by the tender mercy that calls us into a better way. We pray, Lord, that you would meet with us, that you would impress upon us people in our lives that are in need of your blessing and touch. And we pray all of this through Jesus Christ, our Lord.